You're listening to Rock's Heart Radio. In today's episode, part two of our series on cardiometabolic health, Roxana Moran looks ahead with guests Michael Blaha, A. Michael Lenkoff, and Aaron Mikos at What's to Come in 2024. Hello, everyone. It's Roxana Moran on Rock's Heart Radio. It is the very first week of 2024. Happy New Year to all of you. And I know you just can't believe who I've got as my esteemed guests this uh, for this uh, episode of Rock's Heart Radio, January 2024. I am so thrilled to have my dear friend, Dr. Michael Linkoff, who's professor of of medicine, cardiology at the Cleveland Clinic Foundation in Cleveland. He's vice chair of research in the Department of uh, Cardiovascular Medicine, and he's an interventional cardiologist, but we all know um, a couple of months ago at the AHA, he just just blew us away with the SELECT trial as the principal investigator and the the lead investigator of that important, incredible, uh, life-changing trial. So we just can't wait to have our conversation uh, with you, Mike. I'm going to call everyone with their first name, but my next guest is another very close friend and a a great colleague, um, Dr. Erin Mikos. Uh, She is Associate Director of Preventive Cardiology, Associate Professor of Medicine within in the Division of Cardiology at Johns Hopkins. And she also has a joint appointment in, in epidemiology. She is an amazing preventive cardiologist, but so much more, an avid runner and all about cardiometabolic health. I just wish that I could learn more from her and we are going to, uh, I promise, on this episode. At last but not least, uh, we have uh, Dr. Michael Blaha. Uh, he's um, director of the Cardiovascular Research in Chikaroni, um Center of Uh, for the Prevention of Cardiovascular Disease, Professor of Medicine at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Welcome to all of you. Hello. Happy New Year. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us all. All right. Well, as I said, I'm going to call you guys by your um, first names. And so, Mike, I'm starting with you, Mike Linkoff. Um, So, First of the year, everyone's on their treadmills. We all have these great resolutions. And the most important resolution is to just get healthier, not thinner, but definitely healthier. But um, last month uh, with Select, you really blew me out of the water. It was just the most exciting. I can't even tell you the excitement in the room. You could hear a pin drop when you showed that first primary outcome slide and the standing ovation and the and everyone just going crazy. It was just so brilliant. And boy, were you amazing. And congratulations on that uh, study. Really just perfectly executed and beautifully done. So is select for select people or is it for everyone? And how do we um, how do we take those data and bring it to the world where we know cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of death in men and women around the globe everywhere. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's a it was an interesting and, and completely, of course, unplanned um, sort of convergence of two different pr- things going on at AHA. As you know, the AHA presidential advisory that was sort of introduced during that that meeting was also on the the pivotal importance and and sort of the root cause importance 
of dysfunctional fat and overweight and obesity in this whole cardiovascular kidney meta metabolic continuum uh, and, and looking for a uh, more of an emphasis and a, a uniform approach to recognizing the root cause and, and treating these as a continuum of disease rather than sort of individual processes. So, yeah, you know, the this was not the first trial of GLP-1 receptor agonists. It was the, the largest and, and perhaps potentially the broadest population, um, you know, of, of patients with coronary disease, only 30% have diabetes. So that in the setting of diabetes, where we know that there's a, uh, a, a cardiovascular benefit of this class of drugs, that's only a minority of patients with cardiovascular disease and potentially a much larger population with obesity. So obesity and overweight. So, you know, to the question of, is this for everybody? It's not for everybody, but it's it potentially is for a large, for a large proportion of the patients that we see with cardiovascular disease. I think what, what this does is it elevates or it establishes overweight and obesity now as a modifiable risk factor. We, you know, we've thought we've certainly been treating around it for a long time. We treat the downstream intermediate cardiovascular risk factors that are associated with overweight and obesity, such as hypertension, dyslipidemia, dysglycemia. Um, but you know, it, even when those are well treated. Uh, there's evidence that obesity and overweight are independently associated with cardiovascular disease. And, I, so I, and now we have a, a treatment specifically aimed at patients with overweight and obesity that we now have evidence will change their cardiovascular outcomes. So everybody, you know, obviously there are a lot of people without cardiovascular disease who, who are looking at for weight loss per se. And these are effective drugs for weight loss. But if we have to marshal limited resources as a, on a societal level or on, on a cost level, I think the people we want to focus on are those who have the combination of cardiovascular disease and, um, and this risk factor. No, it's a, it's a fantastic uh, segue to all that we need to discuss here today. You know, I um, saw, you know, you're, you were pretty inclusive with a body mass index of just 27 and above. I think it was your entry right. criteria right. and with established cardiovascular disease, non-diabetic patient population. It was just a, a very, very inclusive group of uh, just a little bit of, uh, you know, I, I mean, if I had cardiovascular disease, I would fit in there, Mike. <laughs> Probably I'm just, I th some, many weeks, so would I. <laughs> anyway, so I just felt like it was wonderful that you were you were uh, so very inclusive. And I wondered, you know, Aaron and Mike, maybe we'll start with you, Aaron. Um, do you think, I mean, you, you know, I think what Mike said is very, very uh, important in terms of obesity. Is it all about obesity? We are hearing so much about, I mean, what, what I found incredible in Select was that, yes, we saw weight loss, but then we saw less hypertension. I mean, all of the comorbidities were even improved in as well as the hard outcomes. And I think we're hearing that from our patients. We're seeing it in clinical practice. Is it all about obesity? Is America eating too much? Well, obesity is a serious, chronic, life-threatening disease that substantially increases cardiovascular risk. And we know there's a strong genetic and neural basis of obesity, so it's far more complicated than calories in, calories out. And for too long, patients who've been living with overweight and obesity have been stigmatized. And it, uh, obesity hasn't gotten the same level of attention as other modifiable risk factors like blood pressure, like lipids. And so I think really SELECT is a 
a game changer for cardiology because it, it shows that, you know, uh, that we uh, treat patients with overweight and obesity uh, with this effective therapy that we can reduce, you know, major cardiovascular outcomes. We're talking about cardiovascular death, MI, and stroke. And although um, it didn't quite meet the hierarchical statistical uh, criteria, there was a 19% reduction in all-cause mortality. I mean, mortality is like the hardest thing to reduce in a cardiovascular outcome trial, and there was less deaths with this therapy. So this is really, really important. This is a secondary prevention trial, but I think this really opens the, the window for investigating this in um, you know primary population prevention populations as well. And so we know that it works, and I think now the, the conversation needs to be really about how that we can make this affordable and accessible for all. Yeah, no, really great points. Uh, and Mike, that's sort of where I was going in terms of select. Uh, is it selected for the rich and famous? I mean, if you go to Palm Beach, everyone is on this therapy. All yeah. the all the ladies, they're all looking good. A few <laughs> and, of them probably uh, would qualify for, for this for this trial. So, uh, so tell me, what do, what do you think, Mike? What what? How do we get this to the masses? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and want Mike Linkoff to opine on this too. So yeah, another one of the hats I wear at Hopkins is I'm the director of the cardiometabolic clinic. So we take referrals for patients with obesity and diabetes and high risk of cardiovascular disease. And I, I should clarify what we mean by high risk of cardiovascular disease. We take patients, of course, in secondary prevention, but also patients with heart failure, atrial fibrillation, and of course, a lot of primary prevention patients who are high risk. So that gets to Aaron's point about how do we extend this to primary prevention too. So anyway, so that's you know th that's one of the hats that I wear. Um, so how do we get this to masses? Well, I completely agree with Mike Linkoff. There's you know we still need to be selective about who we treat. And of course, just like any therapy, the higher risk the patient, the more absolute benefit you're going to get in the lower risk patient, the less benefit. But certainly, we need to be thinking about patients who have not yet had a cardiovascular event, too, in some cases, right? Some of our patients with the metabolic syndrome traits who are at high risk of heart failure, high risk of atrial fibrillation, and of course, high risk of ASCVD. Um, for example, we get a lot of imaging in our patients to get referred uh, to our cardiometabolic clinic. Actually, 70% of those referrals are now are obesity, not diabetes, kind of matching what, pretty much what Mike said about, Linkoff said about the population of patients with ASCVD in the world. It's predominantly taking referrals for obesity now. So we're conducting risk stratification in those patients if they haven't had an event. Yeah, and if they've got a lot of subclinical disease or, or early heart failure, we're going to be pretty, pretty aggressive about trying to get a GLP-1 receptor agonist in those patients. Now, there's lots of other issues that we need to talk about in terms of, uh, you know, the cost of these medications, insurance coverage, all the prior authorizations and difficulties that we go through. But yes, we do need to get these patients to the masses. And I think part of what you mean by that is also, yeah, the patients who don't have, obviously, the out-of-pocket money to pay for this without insurance, the patients who tend to be overlooked um, in terms of uh, therapy for lifestyle and weight. Um, and this is tricky. And this is something that we're exploring in our clinic quite a bit. And I think uh, I'll make this comment. I'm sure the whole group will comment this all over the course of this call. We really need to be thinking about net benefit of these therapies. It's not just primary outcome of ASCVD. It's really the, the quality of life benefit that, the, that these patients get. Uh, the improvement in mobility and musculoskeletal uh, um, uh, 
uh, you know, symptoms. This is not from the trial yet, but from my experience. But of course, then the other things like CKD, heart failure, uh, that we've recognized from the trial mortality, as as Aaron mentioned. So really, and once we look at the net benefit, I think that all of a sudden this starts to look more and more cost effective, in my opinion, and more and more that we need to be reaching the masses, as you say. So I think part of this is thinking about being selective, but part of this is also thinking about how do we quantify the net benefit and the value to society of these drugs? Very challenging, but great question. I'm really baffled by the fact that some of the insurance companies, it's easier to get people into obesity surgery than it is to get them for, uh, you know, to get them on Mongero or, you know, or, uh, you know, GLP agonists, you know, and, uh, and I, it just is a very, very, it, it just makes absolutely no sense to me when, especially given what we've already seen. So Mike Lenkoff, um, what's your take on this? What, what do you, you know, you have a crystal ball, you know, the data, you've seen it, First and foremost, and and I I know that you are a pretty unbiased guy. You are able to see the 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 reality of what it is that we should be five years from now. Who's going to be on GLP one agonists? Yeah, I couldn't agree more with Michael Blaha in terms of you know the the primary population. It's not that it's unlikely to work. We know with statins, for example, that that they work with virtually the same slope in in um, patients in primary and secondary. And the dichot- the whole dichotomization of primary and secondary prevention is is clouded anyhow. You know, with calcium scoring and and you know, it, it, clinical trials are an artificial construct. You have to put some sort of inclusion criteria that closely define your population. Then we use medical judgment to 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 extrapolate to the population so the patients were actually treated. You know, we're going to have more data. The the terzepatide trial, the surmount MMO, is actually enrolling patients with high-risk primary prevention as well as secondary prevention. Um, And I think we can anticipate, assuming that the drugs work similarly, and I, I, I think that that, you know, we have to we have to prove that when there's only one drug of a class so far tested. But um, assuming terzepatide performs the same way, we'll have important information across the spectrum. And as more drugs become available. I think we'll also have um, hopefully competition and price price pressures that will will make things more reasonable, and there'll there'll be there'll be ways that lar- larger proportions of our patients uh, would would find this available. So I think we may initially be constrained when because the approval that the the FDA is being asked for is for an expanded label for secondary prevention for cardiovascular risk reduction. So we may be constrained by by payers for that initially, but I think as time goes on, there'll, there'll be room for judgment here. Um, um, and then, you know, as we as we uh, understand, I think as practitioners become more more um, comfortable with the process of prescribing this, so that it moves out of just the the, the rarefied atmospheres of a preventive cardiology clinic or an endocrine obesity um, a weight management clinic, but that more of us are treating it just as we you know do with now with statins and hypertensive meds. I think as as more cardiologists become comfortable with this, um, that there will there'll be a clear expansion. But you know, five years down the road, I expect that most patients who are at high risk or or um, um, or and also for the the you know the heart failure date, although not a cardiovascular outcome trial, the heart failure data from step hef pef is very compelling. That improvement in um, quality of life scores is greater than what you get with SGLT2 or greater than you get with you know most medications. I mean, it's been it's pretty pretty marked, and, and there'll be the step hef pef diabetes trial following shortly. I think at ACC, that's going to be presented. So we'll have even more data. So you know, for the heart failure groups of patients, even those without uh, atherosclerotic disease, it potentially is a very broad group of patients. You know, I want to ask you the the really 
difficult question, but you'll come last, Mike Linkoff, because you I'm sure you've been thinking about this, but I want to hear from Aaron and Mike Blaha. Um, is it just the weight loss? I I, I I think something else is going on here. And these these drugs are there is something else. Uh, those curves do not look like you did not lose weight on day five and start to get benefit. And these things separated immediately. So is there something that we just don't understand about the biology of how these agonists are working? Aaron? Well, first of all, I want to go back to the, you know, where this all emerged was in the diabetes field that I uh, wanted to change the conversation around GLP-1s rather than being diabetes drugs, but to cardiovascular risk reduction agents that they, and among persons with diabetes, they reduce cardiovascular outcomes, you know, irrespective of the A1C, independent of the A1C. Um, and, you know, if you go back uh, to SELECT, um, you know, this was not a weight loss trial. This was a cardiovascular outcome trial. So as such, the weight loss overall was less than we see in the weight loss studies. And yes, as you mentioned, the curves uh, start splitting very early before patients are even titrated up to the 2.4 milligram per week um, target dose. So, you know, there, it, it, we're going to look forward to further analyses. I'm hopefully there'll be mediation analyses that might come forward, um, trying to see whether, you know, whether this is mediated, all explained through the conventional cardiovascular risk factors and weight, or whether there's other things. Um, we know that inflammatory markers like CRP is reduced with GLP-1s, whether that's all just due to changes in adiposity or whether there's additional anti-inflammatory effects. There's been thought to be anti-atherosclerotic effects. Uh, and multiple mechanisms. And I also, we've been talking about cardiovascular patients. I just also want to mention the exciting announcement about the FLOW trial. Uh, it hasn't been fully published yet, but these are patients with uh, chronic kidney disease who had diabetes. And uh, we, it was announced that it also improved kidney outcomes in this, this patient. So we really need to be thinking about the cardio-kidney metabolic spectrum. And I think these uh, agents um, have you know, multiple mechanisms of action. Uh, and that it's not just about the A1C and it's not just about the weight. Mike Blaha, you look at plaques all the time on those CT scans. Yeah. So tell me, what do you think? You think there is an effect? What, what do you think about the anti-atherosclerosis, you know, the, yeah. the regression and all that? Yeah, great, great questions. And I agree with everything that Aaron just said. And I'll add to that, you know, BMI is just not a great... You know, we use it because it's a very convenient clinical measure. And we, and we even use the scale weight as a measure of, of uh, a surrogate of adiposity. But really, of course, what we're really getting at is, is adiposite biology and, and change in sick, fat, whatever you might want to call it. So I think even here, you know, BMI and weight is a stand-in for really what's happening fundamentally to metabolism at the level of the adipocyte. And you can see, you know, you can see weight loss relatively quickly and you can see de de uh, reductions in CRP as Aaron just mentioned quite quickly. So um, I think we need to be thinking of this as, of course, we're going to be thinking about weight, but something fun changing or fundamentally changing the, uh, the biology of uh, the adipocyte um, and probably being anti-inflammatory. So um, yes, yeah, so we look at plaques all the time and we see sort of high-risk plaques and so forth. I'd be very curious to learn more about uh, how quickly we can see change in plaque morphology with these drugs and how that correlates with the weight or maybe even further, how that correlates with changing fat mass or change in fat biology. But it's all the things that that we've mentioned here today. You know, there's probably um, 
uh, via adipocyte biology, but via maybe other mechanisms, cardio protection, kidney protection, uh, perhaps cognitive or, or brain uh, protection, we'll see in future studies. So um, I think the beauty of this is it doesn't need to be summarized in one quick sentence, like, you know, it lowers weight, therefore it has these benefits. It's a really complicated metabolic drug that speaks to why we're talking about today, the cardio metabolism, cardiometabolic medicine, which is a new field that we're all kind of shoring up on now. And it's really going to be part of the future of the next 10 years. So exciting, isn't it? So Mike Linkoff, you have all the answers. It's all in your data sets. I know you're already planned lots of clinical trials around this, and you're going to give us all the answers. What do you think is going on? Well, I think it's important to yeah, I, so I completely agree with Aaron and Mike in terms of the, the all the potential mechanisms. There, there, you know, some of them are probably through the the intermediate risk factors such as hypertension and and you know and uh, probably a lot through glycemia. Even though because two thirds of the patients in that in the trial came in uh, as meeting criteria for prediabetes, and two thirds of those regressed to that prediabetes by the time they were you know, when they were on the drug. So you know, I think even though this was not a patient a diabetes pool of patients, it, I think we. Can't can't uh, you know ignore the the effects on glycemia and then you know inflammation I think is you know is, is very prominent that you know what's happening with ectopic fat you know there are there's there's keen to the quantity of weight loss or the magnitude but or and also the process uh, that it happens with negative energy balance and the weight loss so you know early on the changes in potentially in epicardial and ectopic fat depots and so it, it's important for patients to recognize that they they may get their benefit even if they don't lose a lot of weight as long as they're taking the drug so from a practical standpoint I think that's that's why the dissociation between cardiovascular benefit and uh, the 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 magnitude of weight loss is important uh, conceptually for for patients as well as practitioners just as it is for a1c as Aaron pointed out I, I think we also have to be realistic of what you can get retrospectively from mediator analyses. We're going to do these. But as you know, they're all intrinsically flawed. They're post-randomization events. It's a responder analysis. But are those who respond the same as those who didn't respond? You know, a patient who didn't lose any weight on semaglutide, what does that mean? Uh, the, the biggest predictor of that is they didn't take it. Or, you know, it's it's very hard. It's one thing to do what the cholesterol treatment trialists did and take a number of trials with with that produce different degrees of LDL reduction and look at the degree of, of a cardiovascular protection and see if you could plot that as they did in a in a meta-regression analysis. It's it's entirely different within a trial to say this population responded, this one didn't, and they had different responses cardiovascular. What can you draw from that? We'll be doing it, but they're all they're all just hypothesis generated. I think the reality is we need more experience with different drugs. If trisepatide and you know cagrisema and uh you know the triple the triple receptor retitrutide if these mm -hmm. things produce huge changes in these markers and also huge changes in cardiovascular disease we may start to get some idea of proportionality or mediators but right now i think we the best answer is it's it's probably all of these interrelated effects no no great um wonderful conversation I have to ask this question because we talked a lot about distribution of the fat in the body and that it could be very different responses in different people, consistent benefit across. But I often think um, that women deposit their fats differently than men, uh, more central 
um, you know, uh, obesity. We see all of that. And I'm, I'm certain you're going to look at some of these things with waist circumference and other things that would really help us. But we've also seen some data, uh, especially out of Oxford with uh, peri-adventitial fat and whether or not that has an important, um, uh, Im- uh, you know, impact on atherosclerosis and cardiovascular outcomes. And I wondered if you thought about, and I, I know that there was no um, P interaction for sex or anything like that in your analysis, that it just worked in everyone <laughs> very similarly. But I wondered if this is a, a really important topic of interest and do we have to be different? I always want us to think differently for women because of the fact that they're, we're just not small men and we're different, but I don't know that we ever do these things. And I'm wondering what you're planning, Mike Linkoff. So there certainly is a, a, a high priority as in the, you know, in the next year coming out, um, male, female, um, analysis, both, you know, the cardiovascular, the, the top end data is that it was the same. I mean, the hazard ratio was the same, but also the, the relative effects on on weight loss, on the differences in waist circumference, just as, you, as you've pointed out, and on the different biomarkers. Um, you know, the top look at the data looks very similar. Um, you know, as you know, in, in the weight loss trials, uh, women lost more weight than men. And, and now I'm talking about not this trial, but in the trials mm-hmm. specifically that were, that were the weight loss, the STEP trial, and, and so, mm-hmm. you know, women do tend to lose more weight than men. Um, and that may be part of the reason why the, the average weight loss that we saw in select, which was not a weight loss trial was, was substantially less. There's a lot of other reasons as you, as right. been pointed out, but, um, you know, we, we do, um, recognize that there may well be qualitative and quantitative differences in the, in the responsiveness in men and women. And, and we, we will be looking at that, but the top line is that comfortably, importantly, both benefit. And also, um, you know, the, the benefit, Proportional benefit wasn't dependent upon the baseline BMI, which could speak to, whereas in general, for example, there's more weight loss even proportionally in patients at higher BMI with these drugs, but yet even the patients at the lowest, 27 to 30, had this had a, 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 the same relative risk reduction. So um, it's, it's an interesting dissociation of the cardiovascular benefit. Yeah, no, just is so uh, fantastic. And what a great way. I mean, we can just go on for for a very, very long time about this. But one of the big questions is, do you think that all GLP-1 agonists are same? Can this be like, can I uh, apply this to whoever, like, or does it have to be with the particular outcome data that we currently have with, you know, class effect? Well, we already know from the diabetes world that there was differences in the longer acting GLP-1s um, versus some of the other ones. So not all GLP-1 therapy had a cardiovascular risk reduction among persons with diabetes. But the ones that we're talking about, I would say they're the next generation of GLP-1s. Um, they're much more effective at weight reduction. Um, and so I'm certainly very uh, encouraged that um, with this next generation, not only, um, you know, with the semaglutide, but the ones that are coming out, you know, what well, tricepatide we have, the dual agonists and the triple agonists. And I want to mention that we even now have, you know, some additional oral GLP-1s that are in, you know, phase two trials. So higher doses of oral semaglutide achieving similar weight reduction as injectable semaglutide. And there's even a, a novel oral uh, a GLP-1 um, or glycron being studied as well. So I'm, I'm hoping this is good news for our patients that they're going to be more options 
decisions, which will hopefully um, drive down uh, cost. But in terms of cardiovascular outcome reduction, I think uh, we at least want to see another class. So I'm very excited about seeing the terzepidide data, as mentioned. There's about MMO, uh, cardiovascular outcome trial is enrolling. Hopefully, we'll see consistency. So once you see consistency across a couple agents in this class, I think that will really solidify this as a cardiovascular prevention drug, not just a weight loss drug. Uh, but we're talking about chronic weight management in persons at high cardiovascular risk. Mike Blaha, thank yeah. you, Gordon. I mean, I completely agree with Aaron. It's just so good for our patients and for the paying environment. They could have a competitive marketplace with multiple agents available. This is a game changer in our clinic to have also patients who don't tolerate one drug to have another option. You know, there's always intra-patient differences or perceptions and benefits. So it's been so good to have more uh, entrance into the class. I'm specifically, I guess, talking about the for obesity therapy here. Of course, we have many GLP-1s that could also be used for diabetes. But this is this is outstanding, yeah, for the field. So I think that we're gonna get to the place where we think that you know the, the these drugs are, are largely similar, but we have to follow the data too. And as, as Aaron mentioned, we need to, to respect the select data and say that's where we have the data so far. We need to anticipate the future trials and we need to be forthright with our patients where the data is, but really also work with them and work with their payers and getting access to whatever uh, that patient can get their hands on that will benefit because certainly any GLP-1 is better than no GLP-1 and a patient who needs it. Thank you, Mike. Uh, now back to you and for the final word, Mike Linkoff. I, well, I largely agree with Aaron and Mike that these this is likely to be a class effect with the, with the caveat that we don't know for sure that the dual agonists or the triple agonists have exactly this, that, that there may not be some, you know, opposing effects. So we need we need surmount MMO. At the very least, we need surpass CVOT to just prove that there's the same effect for, for diabetes. I think we'll all feel much more comfortable once the first dual agonist winter's appetite shows, because they haven't yet, none of those have yet shown a cardiovascular benefit. We fully anticipate there will be, but I think we need to take that step. We need to be driven by the data. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, I want to thank you guys. I remember 15 years ago sitting in the room with the FDA with you, Mike, and um, uh, and uh, Steve Nissen when we were talking about um, diabetes, um, diabetes drugs, and why how we have to solidify how we define cardiovascular outcomes and that all diabetes drugs would have to have their cardiovascular outcomes evaluated. Well, thank God for that, right? Remember that. I mean, had we not had those meetings and come up with those, I remember that. I remember sitting in the room with Norm and you and and Karen uh, Hicks and that paper that we all wrote together with the um, with uh, defining the how to define and the definitions uh, with all and it was also with heart failure uh, our heart failure team Scott Solomon was there and so many and here we are almost two decades later with so much great news uh, on these drugs and um, I just want to thank you for. Uh, uh, making time for this, but also for the time that you put into your clinical trials and your knowledge in prevention, but uh, in cardiometabolic health, which is exactly where we need to go uh, to improve and enhance outcomes on top of our interventions if needed, but certainly 
absolutely as a as a hallmark of what we need to do going forward to enhance the health outcomes of our patients with cardiovascular disease. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you for being here. And this is uh, Roxana Moran signing off Rox Heart Radio. See you all next month. I wonder what I have next next month for you. 